Chase, you gotta copy, Chase. Yeah, go ahead. Eleven months gone. I'll be over in a minute. Time, temperature, and concentration. Read the work order. Safety glasses. You're not done with that yet? Hey, put on some gloves. Can you please just follow the process? Make sure you put your respirator away. Solvent rags go over the side of the trash can. Where's your wet film gauge? Make sure you're putting tags back on the parts. Did you milk check that? Put your tools away. This chase. Kaiser Cast episode 18. I'm here with Chloe today. It's our first podcast back after the holidays. Chloe was on vacation for a while, but she's back now. Did you have a good, refreshing vacation, Chloe? It was amazing. Um, it was just the best possible way to start a new year. Um, I feel energized. And at the same time, I'm realizing that there's a level of tired that um, vacation can't really fix at this point. I don't know if anyone <laughs> okay. else feels that way. I don't know if you feel that way after your week off. Uh, well, I didn't take a week off. I maintenance the whole time, like I said I would. I didn't live up to, so at the last podcast, I think I said that I, I was multiplying out hours and I was going to do 16 hours a day every day, and I didn't quite get that accomplished because I was too tired and I needed a little more sleep, but I tried to be down there as much as I possibly could and still didn't get all the maintenance done that I wanted, unfortunately. The snow probably took a toll too, huh? Yeah, it did. It uh, 10 hours to clear the lots and everything to make sure, to, in ahead of snow, to make sure that we didn't have stuff getting snowed on that we didn't want and to make sure the lots were clear enough to actually move it. So we got less than what they predicted, quite a bit less, so only a few inches. So actually getting the snow moved off to the sides and stuff didn't take too long, a couple hours, uh, but... It was 10 hours worth of just organizing everything because we hadn't done that yet to like snow prep, what we call it when we get close to winter. And so like nothing was where it needed to be for snow. So it took too, too long. What's involved in snow prepping? Mainly just getting the lots all clear and, and getting stuff organized. So when we go to push the snow, there's like alleyways to go with it. And then um, there was just a lot of stuff that we had sitting outside um, that gets pre-treated and powder-coated or uh, blasted and powder-coated that, um, like, aluminum substrates really uh, don't... It doesn't really matter if they're sitting outside for the most part because they don't corrode very quickly, um, even if we're not blasting them. But uh, we we don't want to get snow and ice on all those parts and pieces. So we had to organize things and get all of that in and... We've just, like we've been talking about, we've been really busy and, and had a lot of stuff in the parking lot. So it just took a lot of time getting all that moved around. Did you fix anything noteworthy over that week? Uh, all kinds of things. Mainly focused on the wash base. And that took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. So did a lot of just replacing fittings and hoses 
and valves, just things that were starting to leak, um, kind of, or like I'm knowing that most of it's on the verge of wearing out, so trying to get all that replaced. And uh, every time I dove into something, I would see like further down the the line that like, oh, that's also getting worn out. No, that's also getting worn out. And I wasn't anticipating that. So I don't have the supplies here. So now I got to go try to overnight some stuff. And so it just, every time I got into something, it, the project got bigger and bigger, which is fine. I don't mind doing that. But then I was, I was starting to run out of, of hours to get everything on my list that I wanted done. I haven't watched it yet, but you mentioned you caught a lot of that process on GoPro. Um, and so I'm, I'm anticipating watching you go, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, I, I refrained from like being to like having that on the GoPro itself, but I, I was trying to just get like, kind of like how to's on how to do certain things. Cause a lot of what I was doing on the maintenance side is really applicable to anybody in terms of just like working with fittings or, you know, if you're doing a little bit of plumbing for a sink, it's pretty, like I wasn't replacing sinks, but I was messing around with fittings and the tools that you need to do that and, and thread sealants and things like that. So, um, yeah, hopefully that footage turned out good and, uh, we'll be able to post some of that, but it was more of like, and I had to do just like a little bit of electrical work, nothing serious, nothing that like, um, that electrician has to be doing, but uh, so hopefully some of that stuff will help um, people learn how to work with their hands. So many of us rely on social media to t to basically teach us those kind of basic life skills that I think a lot of people used to learn from their parents, and then that kind of stopped happening, I guess, over generations. Uh, yeah. But I'm picturing, you know, that'd be really good TikTok content is just like basic plumbing, your sink backs up, what do you do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Speaking of social media, do you have your tip of the day? I do, um, and it's kind of inspired by some recent posting we've been doing. Um, I think it was based off of episode 16 of KazerCast, in which we kind of went down some, I don't want to say dark roads, but maybe some, some less uh, chipper roads than we normally travel. Um, in which you kind of talked about, you know, how it's been a hard couple of years and hiring is difficult and lead times are long and everyone's tired and all of that. And we kind of just sort of leaned into it and talked about it for a full week on social. Um, and the response that we got from people was really overwhelming in a good way. We had a lot of people reach out and say, hey, listen, I get it. I'm in the same boat. I'm here. Keep it up keep your nose to the grindstone, um, stay on your game, all of that good stuff. And so I guess my tip of the day would be to stay vulnerable because it can be tempting to want to make everything look perfect and professional all the time. But I think there's a lot of value in telling people when you're not doing well or when you've made mistakes or when things are hard um, because that resonates with people and they will in turn then reach back out to you and it creates a sense of community that doesn't exist otherwise. Yeah, I agree with that, definitely, because we usually just uh, broadcast all sunshine and roses, even though, like, that's not really my um, mentality. It's My mentality is like that, you know, uh, everything is not always good. But I agree that w with what that we put out on social, we're just doing snapshots of, of the when stuff is good. So I, it, it has been interesting to see all of the, the people commenting and, 
and it um people disagreeing like yeah i'm dealing with that too yeah i understand your frustration it's nice to hear that a little bit because we deal with so i feel like when you're dealing directly with your current customers or current suppliers you know everybody's just so frustrated and trying to get stuff done nobody can nobody really gives each other any room or or pat on the back because we're just in that daily grind um but then when you step outside the people that you're normally having to do business with that you're that we're, that you just have these frustrations back and forth um then then like the real side of things comes out and, and people are like yeah we're dealing with it too because um, you just don't have time like the your current customers and your suppliers even though you probably have good relationships with them you're just trying to get stuff done when you're communicating with them so you don't have time to kind of commiserate and say hey it's okay because like you gotta you gotta hold each other accountable and keep each other honest to try to try to keep your business moving forward so I think there's also value in explaining to people why things are the way they are. And so in our case, our lead time is like very long, much longer than it normally is this time of year. And it's not because we're, you know, sitting around drinking coffee at work. It's for all of the reasons that we talked about in episode 16. And I think when people know that they're a lot more likely to be empathetic. Um, and we can really communicate to them how important their business is and how much we value their time and how sorry we are and how this is beyond our control and um, I think there's a lot of value in that too. Yeah, and I've been thinking a lot about just here recently um, that we have, and and we record some content about this, and and because I've been thinking about it, we what we've done for so long is provided a really good service that I, I'm just gonna say that it, it's perfect. It's not, but I just for lack of a better term that like that what we're given as the end product is so perfect and we're we're taking everything into consideration and we're not making any mistakes and we're if we have to do something we take the time to communicate um but we don't let it slow down that that quick turnaround time and so we're we're very speedy on how everything's happening and and we're communicating well to the customer so they're happy and not surprised with the end product and as we've gotten a lot busier and you're just dealing with all this extra stuff back and forth with suppliers and customers not necessarily getting the stuff when they say or certain things that they would normally do the way they would package it on their way to you or or things like that is not happening anymore so like it puts more on us in terms of like okay we're receiving the sin we don't have everything now we need to communicate back that we don't have all of it and and like, oh, this isn't how it normally comes. Or now all these parts are rusty. They're not normally rusty. And but we're still trying to like the biggest thing right now is make sure we we get it done when we say we're going to. So all this kind of communication in the middle starts to fall out. And we just we're just going. Like if questions come to me from the floor, like what do you want to do this this don't worry about it, keep going. You know, where in the past I would say, hold on a second, let me get hold of somebody. But now my customers aren't even necessarily ready, available to talk to me because they're they're busy themselves. They're normally in the office at their desk. They're actually on the shop floor cutting that part that day because they're just so shorthanded. And so now there's just this communication barrier back and forth to where we just have to go forward with certain things and get it done. And then the end result isn't as perfect as it used to be because we're it's not that we're necessarily that we're taking shortcuts, but we don't have we're not taking the we don't have the time so we're not taking the extra time to like 
go the extra mile and be like, oh, they didn't, you know, these parts came in rusty. We're just going to take care of it and do such and such. Or, oh, we're missing all these parts. You know, we're going to make sure we go through and cut every single piece and communicate back to make sure we get them all here and then we're going to run them all together. Now, if we're, it's possible we're missing a couple pieces that we we're supposed to have and it's like, we can't worry about it right now. We just got to put this through. We got to put the other 48 out of 50 pieces through and get them done. And then I forget to communicate that with the customer or I communicate it as they're going into the oven. Right. And they're like, Oh, we got those two pieces. Oh, we did find them. Sorry. We didn't get back to you in time. And sorry, they weren't on the pallet. Can we bring them down? I'm like, Nope. It missed the run, you know? And then like, well, how soon can you get them done? Well, we're not going to be in that color again for two weeks. And then all of a sudden there's this understandably a huge frustration on their end. And like, what do you mean it's going to be two weeks? Why didn't you communicate with us? Why and it's just, that just that stuff isn't working anymore to the to for us to fulfill like the operational speed that coding the coding industry has to always have and always has since there's like kinks in that system now you know we have to maintain the speed because we're expected to but the everybody's end quality is just not quite as good whether it's a supplier or other finishers in the industry because we we're just not able to, to, we're not able to go that extra mile right now. And it, all of our customers have just become so accustomed to that. They don't even have to ask, we're going to go the extra mile. And so now that we're not doing that, even though it was kind of a bonus before. So you would think it would just come back to like, we were plus. So now we're at zero, but they actually take it as like, it's expected. So now it's a negative. And so, and I, I'm trying to, reconcile that a little bit and be, because my initial reaction is just like you know what just deal with it you know like too bad i can't help it but that's not the right way right we we still have to try to continue to um delight our customers and that's been that's been really hard i i watched a video last night that i'm going to try to like it's going to try to stick with me for 2022 it just came across it was warren buffett was giving a speech and i really like listening to people that i mean obviously has a lot of money but like there's certain people that are involved in a lot of large scale businesses and their thought processes are what make all that work and their ability to keep a positive attitude essentially and have basically no emotion towards business not and i don't mean that they don't have good emotion or bad emotion they just like always are the end they're always thinking about like the end customer i guess and one of the things he said was that your your focus should always be to delight the customer and i lose sight of that honestly especially during this COVID time I have in the past, I've pretty much stuck with that constantly and let all the frustration that happens, let my team have the frustration, but then I filter all that and communicate with the customer and just get them what they want and delight the customer. And I, when I heard that last night, then my immediate thought was I have not been delighting our customers as much as I used to. And so I need to get back to doing that. So at the end of the day, I mean, we can continue to those those videos that we put out um, uh, were true 
and I, but I can continue to whine and complain all of 2022 about it. Um, just like everybody else is going to, or I can step up to the plate and us as a team at Kayser can step up to the plate and start trying to delight customers again. And, um, so I think that that's what we need to do. And in the past it was recognized and people appreciated it. But I think now, even in today, in today's world, they're going to appreciate it 10 times more because like nobody's getting delighted anymore. Right. Just because of the situation of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you find the energy and stamina to do that when you're kind of just in survival mode? Well, we may, we have, uh, we had a new hire start, um, Abby in, in the office and that whenever I have new people start and they work out, I know it's only been a week, so knock on wood. Um, but that usually re-energizes me cause it helps me, you know, I got to have work for those people to do. And, um, so right now that I think that's what's re-energizing me. Also, we have Steve in the powder coating shop. We started in December. He's doing fantastic and does better and better every day as he learns more. So those those new hires that are working out, um, even though we, I still feel like we're short-staffed, but those are helping to remind me that it's not all doom and gloom. And uh, when I see people caring and being able to help move us forward, then me as the leader, I have to, like, I have to hold up my end of the bargain, right? If I'm not, if I'm not uh, doing my job of treating customers uh, really, really well and delighting every single one of them, no matter what, then how can I ask the team to work really hard every single day to put out a, an amazing product when on my side of things, I'm, I'm, diminishing the product i guess when i'm not taking the time to do everything absolutely perfect i feel like this is the perfect lead-in to introduce eric ledger it is so um eric is has been working for show williams for an extremely long time over 30 years which is very impressive and uh we got him on the phone today and he's going to talk about pretty much how he decided to just to start working as a at Sherman Williams and then like what's what's kept him there for so long and uh, he has a lot of um, interesting things to tell us. So our guest today on KaiserCast episode 18 is Eric Ledger and he works for the Sherman Williams company and he's worked there for a very long time and we're going to get into that when we start talking with him. Um, I know him as our powder coating sales rep for Sherman Williams and I probably got to know him, it's probably been about five years ago when I first started working full-time at Kayser. And uh, he's a pretty good resource for me. I know that he pays, he's probably the one sales rep that pays the closest attention to our social media and brings that up to me a lot and, and gives us a lot of good feedback. And I really appreciate that. Um, so we're looking forward to talking to him today because he's got a lot of knowledge about the painting industry. So how are you doing today, Eric? All right, good. Thanks for thanks for having me, uh, Jace and Chloe. I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, no problem. Chloe's got a lot of questions for you, um, so I'm probably gonna let her take it away with it. But um, just kind of getting started, what 
when did you start working with Kaiser directly? Has it always been with um, the powder coating side of things? Or when you were working at the paint store in Omaha, was it some commercial residential painting as well? Yeah, so I out of Omaha, I was never in the commercial residential painting. I was, you know, uh, back through 1993 when I ran a Denver commercial store, and then I made the switch over to OEM coatings. But as far as uh, my relationship with Kaiser, um, your dad put in a blast booth, um, I think shortly after he put that blast booth in, and I'm just going to pick a year. I'm thinking that was right around 2009, 2010. Um, um, I came in there, and then I think at that time he had he had told me that there was plans down the road uh, for you guys to put in a powder booth, but really just wanted to, to let me know that you guys had the, the blast booth in and that if I had any customers that... Um, we're going to be looking for blasting uh, because I do have people that look for blasting for, for you know, to either be powder coated or liquid coated um, uh, to let them know. And that's, that's kind of my, my first involvement um, with your father. And then uh, of course, when the, I want to say right around 2015, 2016, you guys started uh, your powder, your powder side, possibly a little bit before that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much how I remember it too. So, um, Go ahead and take it away, Chloe. It's so nice to uh, meet you almost in person, Eric. Uh, I have a bunch of questions, as Jace mentioned, but before we started, you said something about OEM coatings. Can you clarify what that is? Yeah, so uh, that I, 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 I probably say that more so uh, customers understand that um, there's something different than just the uh, painting of your home, painting of a building, things that you see. So when I say OEM coatings, I'm talking about original equipment manufacturing coatings, or um, Sherwin-Williams uses the term product finishes or general industrial. Um, and, and what we're trying to do is make um, differentiate, differentiate the division I work for. Um, separate from, um, um, it used to be called Stores Group, now it's called the Americas Group, um, and that's our, our local house paint stores, or the, the local stores that you go to buy paint that you brush and roll in. So basically, our facility in Omaha, we have a dedicated facility just for job shops, uh, powder and liquid, and manufacturers just dedicated uh, uh, to them. So if you walked in, into our facility, we don't have anything there that you could brush or roll. Everything's going to be, uh, have to be spray applied, whether it be powder coating or liquid coating. And that's probably the easiest way to differentiate it. We, you know, we've gone through a lot of different name changes since we uh, became our own division back in 2002. Um, we uh, used to conduct this business all under our uh, stores group up until that time. And then, uh, um, basically, at the beginning of 2002, we became our own division, and we started putting in um, facilities throughout the country just to uh, dedicate to that market. Um, uh, the, there were cer certain areas, like, uh, for instance, I'll just pick out Denver, where I was previously. We had a dedicated facility there. It was part of the stores group, but it was dedicated just to manufacturing, and we had probably about six or seven of those throughout the country, Minneapolis was one, a couple of them in the Chicago metro area. Um, and let me think Arlington, some out in California to take care of the electronics market. We took that footprint and we basically made that um, a nationwide. And I think that really kind of started to take effect. We started looking at that when we became more of a force in the powder market. 
um, and and uh, we wanted to dedicate uh, a facility in, in major metro areas or manufacturing areas um, just to that market. That makes sense, and it sounds um, very in line with. Um, so I have to reveal to you, I did stalk you on LinkedIn a little bit and learned that you have a degree in industrial relations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that degree, kind of its purview, and what led you to it? So I didn't start out with that when I went to school. I went to school at University of Iowa. I'll back up a little bit. So my parents, um, uh, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, till I was a senior in high school. But my dad, uh, my mom and dad both come from agricultural families. But my dad was a... Um, my dad was a Korean War vet, uh, Purple Heart, came back from the war um, with kind of a mangled up leg, wasn't going to be able to farm with his brothers and his dad. And so uh, he had an uncle that had a small uh, lumberyard feed supply, uh, grain storage, um, which is real popular, at least in, you know, at one time in the very rural markets. And so when he came back from uh, Korea, um, he had an uncle that owned uh, one of those type um, lumber yards and he worked there. So he came back and this would have been back in the time of the late 50s when, you know, only the, uh, um, let's say, higher upper end, uh, um, higher class people could probably afford an architect if they were building a home. So you went to your lumber yard and they usually had a draftsman on staff that would um, draw something for you, whether it be a barn, whether it be your house, a garage, that's where you went. So that's something that, um, from what I understand, my dad excelled at at the time. So that's what he kind of did uh, there at that at that lumber yard. And then eventually he went to um, Dunwoody Institute with his GI Bill, learned architectural drafting. And then uh, from there, he went to uh, become an um, architect on staff uh, for a large lumber company in the Minneapolis area. That's where he met my mom. Um, and so then he, he moved on to, many, uh, to management roles within that organization. Uh, right before my senior year, his uncle was uh, going to retire and wanted to sell the lumber yard. And so my dad bought it, moved a uh, whole family from um, the met metropolis of Minneapolis, Minnesota to a uh, a little small town in southeast Iowa that had a lumberyard, a church, and a tavern. That's all that was in that town. Um, anyway, I went on to the University of Iowa to, to go to school uh, with intentions of coming back to run the lumberyard with my, my dad and my two brothers. And that was about the time of the farm crisis. Uh, anybody remembers uh, there was a uh, farm crisis in this nation in the early 80s. Uh, my dad said, you know, when you graduate, there isn't enough here to support four families. You need to take your degree and and find something else. Uh, take it, you know, out on the road. When things get better, come back. So I was in the um, Iowa National Guard at the time. I actually went to Iowa with intentions of getting a finance degree. I'm going to say by my sophomore year, I realized that that wasn't something I wanted to do. And I really was kind of lost. Um, I had a sergeant in the uh, guard that was a... Um, union, uh, or he's in HR, but he was a negotiator for train, um, uh, what do I want to say, train air conditioning out of Washington, Iowa. And he asked me if, uh, you know, we got to talk and told me I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was going to be going into my junior year and was kind of at a crossroads. My sophomore year wasn't very good. 
he asked me to come to a union negotiation, sit in on a union negotiation. And I sat in on that. It was pretty cool um, watching that happen. And uh, so I um, um, really, really neat experience. And, and I actually went back a second time uh, to observe it and, and thought it was pretty cool. And so I, that's, that's where the industrial relations degree started at. Um, really to get with, to really have much more to do with that, you really need to go on to get your master's and, and it's really more on the HR side of things, but it's a degree that you can pretty much take into the business world, which is what I did. I, I, I kind of always wanted to stay in the lumber side of things. Um, my dad, uh, when he when he you know told me that that's what I probably ought to do is take that out. I'd spent a summer out in Colorado one summer and thought that that's where I wanted to go. I interviewed with uh, a company at the time. They're out of business now, or they've been purchased by somebody else. But they were called Champion Building Products, and uh, so I interview, interviewed with them um, in late '84 to start, and early '85 um, went out to Colorado to start in sales for them in turn inside sales to start you out with and then after a few months then you go out in outside sales and basically call on building centers um, in between that time of my interview and my uh, you know startup they bought a um, St. Regis paper company and put a hiring freeze on so I was uh, advised by the vice president of sales for champion out in Colorado at the time to go find something temporary. So what I tell people is I'm now in my 37th year of my temporary job. Um, so that's kind of how, that's how I ended up with Sharon Williams. And that's uh, as far as the original question on industrial relations, it's, it's, uh, it's a degree that um, all my professors were actually people who were owners in the, in the business market. I mean, most of them from Eastern Iowa, um, Western Illinois. Um, all my, um, almost all my classes were at night. My last two years of school. So, what led you to, uh, um, to Sherwin Williams? I guess as like a paint company. Why'd you apply there? And did that have to do a little bit with your dad being an architect and maybe being around that design aspect? And then it made Sherwin Williams seem like a place that might kind of tie together with a little bit of your background. Well, I think, I think actually what I think happened was, I mean, uh, so I worked at Nagel Lumber while I was going to school in Iowa City. There was a Sherwin-Williams store right across the street. Um, and I think that I wanted to stay somewhere in that uh, building materials market. And, you know, at the same time that this was going on, um, when I moved out there uh, in the area that my dad's lumberyard was, that it was became very depressed. If you ever... Uh, want to go through this is during the farm aid times Willie Nelson farm aid times there's a lot of uh, a lot of people lost their farms at that time and 99% of my dad's business with farmers so he was probably being a little bit more protective of me and uh, when that when things fell through with champion and it was temporary because they actually called me back and asked me hey we're ready to start you but they wanted me to go along to California and I wasn't interested in going any further west than I was um, so I, I think I, I, I don't know at the time when I went into, um, when I went to work for Sharon Williams, if that was a, a long-term plan, because I think I, I was looking for something. I didn't have a lot of money in my pocket when I left. I was actually, 
so when he told me to go find something temporary, I actually lived in with a friend in Colorado Springs and I sold a couple um, uh, Kirby vacuum cleaners. I was selling Kirby vacuum cleaners door to door is what I was doing just to, I was running out of money and I'd been there for about a month and a half. Um, and I wasn't there to go back and ask my parents to help me out uh, at the time because, you know, I knew what they were going through during that time, just trying to keep our, our lumber yard afloat. So um, I, I took the job with Sherwin Williams and what really was, it was really, so my dad, well, my dad would say to me is, remember, people are always going to have to paint. Um, they might not be able to afford to build a new home or remodel a home, but they're going to try to keep up what they have. So he just felt like I would, I would be in a safe industry um, stay, uh, staying in the paint business at that time. And, and that's probably, you know, I was only 23, 24 years old at the time. So I think that that's probably what I was thinking at that time. I can tell you, Jace, I did not plan to be there 37 years later. Okay. What's really interesting to me is, is like, this is an eerily similar story to what happened to my dad. Like he, he grew up in rural Nebraska on a farm, was planning on, you know, going to take over the farming, which is not exactly what you were doing, but it was similar, right? It was around the lumber yard and stuff like that. And then he was kind of set on that's what he was going to do. And, but then all of a sudden when it came time, his dad told him like, Hey, there's not enough to support you and your brother. So you need to go, you know, go do something or go to college and, and kind of figure out uh, what you're going to do yourself. And if, if it gets better and we have enough stuff, you can come back, but otherwise you might not be able to. And so then he went and became an auto mechanic and kind of did that for a while and then somehow ended up in the painting industry. But it's weird how both those stories are pretty similar and you guys both ended up in the painting industry. So what, to give us an idea of, I assume Denver commercial store, is there just one and is it huge and you're servicing a lot of people just because the city's so much bigger than like Lincoln or Omaha? Yeah, so at that time in 85, we just had one, but by, uh, let me think about this, 89 or 90, we put a northern one in. So and now I believe they might have even three different commercial stores in Denver, a north, a south, and a central. Okay. Um, so I was at that time more central, um, centrally located. So when, when we designate those, we, we, I mean, we still take care of uh, uh, retail, but our sales floor is probably more dedicated to uh, the trade where, I um, mean, back at this time, almost all the facilities sold wall, all the stores sold both wallpaper and floor covering. Um, right before I moved over to the product finish OEM side, we, uh, different metro areas started putting in dedicated floor coverings. So they kind of took that away from the uh, outside of the stores. Um, when I started, a lot of the stores had designers in there. So they would, you would walk in and there would usually be a, a lady that would help you with design, uh, whether it be um, floor covering and wallpaper, you know, and wallpaper. From what I gather, I think wallpaper's kind of gone away. We're not, you know, I don't know how many homes still have, are, are still being wallpapered like they were back at that time. Um, blinds. We sold blinds. We had the the, the blind vignettes. Um, when you went to a, to the commercial stores, those things kind of we didn't have those. Um, and it was a smaller sales floor um, dedicated more to equipment and tools for the contractor. Um, 
but I, so I was in that till '93, and then they uh, we had a we had a dedicated facility there. Uh, we at that time we called it our chemical coatings division, which uh, we don't call that anymore. We kind of moved over to the product finishes about 2003, 2004, because uh, chemical coatings was something that was more of an internal. We understood what that division did, but our customers really didn't understand that. Um, so we went from product finishes and actually our name right now, the division that we call, so we call our facility a product finish facility, like the one that's in Omaha. Um, but what I do is what they call industrial, uh, general industrial uh, slash OEM coatings. So it, we get to 93 and I, you're still at the Denver commercial. And then from there, do you make another big move somewhere? Well, so 93 is when I moved over uh, to the, to the dedicated facility to service uh, manufacturers and, and uh, job shop. And was that in the Denver area then? Yep. Yep. That was in the Denver area. Um, and I did that for 10 years. Um, and then my dad passed away in 98. Um, so right about that time or shortly after that, and my in-laws reti- uh, who retired from Samsonite out of Denver, they, uh, they had a second uh, place down in North central Arkansas where my mother uh, my mother-in-law was from, and so they uh, they moved there full time after they retired. They still kept their uh, one of their rental homes in Denver, but they moved down there. And so I, at that time, we were just we wanted to get closer to parents. I wanted to get my kids um, into the Midwest. I guess is how I'll say it. I wanted to get them back here for uh, they were getting into. Um, um, elementary school and we we kind of had a uh time picked when we weren't going to move when we weren't going to make that move and sixth grade was kind of when we picked it was our son was in fourth grade so we picked that was a good time for us to to move they uh, they they were going to open a dedicated facility in omaha was a former uh i'm sorry yeah in omaha it was a former omaha commercial store and um at that time they were handling both the painting business and uh, um, product finish business uh, under the same roof. It had a mixing um, mixing room in there, and um, so the the um, contractor side moved out uh, over to J Street, created their own um, Denver or Omaha commercial store, and then I took over and we opened up basically a new facility in Omaha and that was in 2000 I I came in September and officially opened in January of 2003 okay so that was like the the a real big step from the you were in commercial painting side of things at a Sherwin store in Denver and then in Omaha the real big change was then you went over to like the OEM coating side of things or, or industrial finishes and then since then i feel like you've always been associated with industrial finishes yep i have so um in in, when we did this in 2003 um we had uh two territories one that took care of i want to say from highway 81 west um and then we had a territory that took from uh 81 east all the way over to um part of western iowa and so when we opened up the facility in Omaha, we had basically two, two reps. Um, 
some changes that were done over in Iowa side. We put another rep over there, uh, brought his lines more over to this side. Um, and then we ended up in Nebraska just dedicating one one rep to the state of Nebraska and uh, kind of opened up that geographics even more for coverage for one person to cover. And the person that was on there left us after uh, 18 years, went to do something else. And then we had oh, three or four uh, uh, other reps from outside the company um, on the territory. And, um, and then in 2008, uh, um, one of them went back to where he was at before. And, and so the VP of sales called me up and asked if I was interested in uh, taking that, taking the territory. And so at that time you had only been really working at a store, going to the same place every day, whether it had been in Denver and Omaha. And I assume running quite a few people that were, um, you're managing them essentially. So was it a big decision for you to say like, okay, I'm going to actually go out on the road and be driving around all the time selling? Um, it, 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 it was, uh, I mean, it was a big change, but I, I would say the last uh, couple of years that I was on the, um, in the facility, there was something that I, I, I think I just wanted to do probably for two things. I wanted to change and I just, you know, for lack of term, I, I'll just say, I, I, I thought I could do better than what was being done. Um, so, and, and so I, you know, I've been on the territory since August of, uh, I'll just say September 1 of 2008. Um, and, and, and I'm still on it, still covering the same, the same area. Um, I'm out on the road, uh, six to seven nights a month. I'm, I'm out West. Um, so, you know, the Tri-City area and then a little bit up in the Sand Hills, I usually try to get up there once a quarter, um, cause there are, there is some business up there and, and, uh, they appreciate seeing somebody. They, uh, some of those rural areas tend to get ignored. Um, and they uh, they appreciate seeing somebody in per, you know in in, in person. I, I would say that's one of the strong points that I actually do like doing. I is uh, um, trying to get out and see people uh, in in person. I'm not uh, a good um, I'm not a good salesperson on the phone. I guess is probably how I'll say it. Uh, I, I'm. I don't like working from home all right now because I'm in a cast. I'm working from home, so I won't let me drive. Um, so I'm, I just had surgery here uh, on the 30th of December, so I'll be in a cast for a little while, but I'm working from home right now. How did uh, COVID affect being able to drive around and see people? So, you know, we had that first two, three weeks of, of uh, flattening the curve. Um, and I would say almost all of my customers, you know, probably pretty much were, were under that no visitor rules. And then dependent on where they were based out of, some of them um, carried that on for almost all of 2020. Um, I would say some of the locally owned ones started opening things up by uh, June. Um, but I was, you know, I had I had started to land some new business in late 2019, early 2020 that took attention. So, um, you know, within our company, um, we were very uh, proactive at being safe, staying home, um, having to get approval to be out on the road if we were seeing a you know seeing a customer, which I, I needed to do that, and their guidelines were were set on how we how we had to how we would conduct business. 
Um, but I had a couple startups that are really hard to do uh, virtually. So you really needed to be be there and we were able to do those safely. Um, some, some of the conversations that we had to talk had to be done out in the parking lot. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think, you know, we did a really good job with that. And I wasn't in those areas that were as clamped down as, as um, you know, we weren't, to me, we weren't clamped down. I know there are certain areas of the country they were, where they were clamped down where, I mean, we, we all had a letter with us that said we were essential so that, but early on, I think there was even areas from what I heard that uh, some of our representatives might actually be pulled over. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing out? That kind of thing. Um, and that you know you, they weren't supposed to be out. They weren't. They were either supposed to be home or they were supposed to be uh, either you know coming home from work, but not just out. Uh, so we we all carried a letter with us to show that you know we were essential workers and we were going somewhere. We weren't out shopping. So when you say that you're visiting uh, clients, are you talking about job shops like Kaiser or manufacturers? Are you, is it agricultural? Who do you serve? So, yeah, so uh, job shops um, and, and uh, manufacturers, straight manufacturers that paint for themselves. Um, so there's, you know, and you get to, to central uh, Nebraska or the Grand Island area, there's um, some large manufacturers out there that, um, have job shops they do their own painting but then a lot of their overflow is done by a job shop similar to what jace does um but yeah i'm 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 seeing job shops and and oems manufacturers both so did you acquire your industry knowledge kind of you know as you went i mean how did that work how do you educate yourself on powder coating as someone who has never done that before so i'll i'll, I'll tell you about that so you know, up until I, I can remember the very first time I heard about powder coating, but I can tell you about the very first meeting I went to in 1994 in Salt Lake City. We had just, um, uh, it was shortly after we had, or about the time we bought Pratt & Lambert. So Pratt & Lambert at one time was um, pretty big in powder. And so we've probably grown through acquisition more than anything else. Um, you know, the stories that I was told as far as powder goes, and I'm, I'm talking about powder because that's, uh, you know, kind of in your area, your wheelhouse is um, Jordan Williams was was one of the early um, pioneer. I don't know. I'm not going to say we, we invented powder by any means, but one of the early pioneers in the 70s. And at that time, we had a couple of gentlemen out of uh, Chicago that were actually out peddling powder, literally had some boxes of, I think, some black and white and some main colors in a station wagon and driving throughout the Midwest to visit with manufacturers about it. And in the 70s, that's when this country is going through its first energy crisis. So one of the struggles at that time was that we... Um, uh, was, you know, you got to bake um, and you got ovens going. And so a lot of people weren't interested in that. Um, and baking enamel, the people that were baking were pretty much um, uh, dug into sticking with baking enamels. But um, so we, I think Sharon Williams kind of just folded our tents and, and decided that market wasn't for us at the time. And then gradually a lot of companies that really didn't have a lot to do with powder um, started you know, we're out in the market. Kodak, for example, they sold powder at one time. Morton, that was part of the Morton Thiokol 
you know, that um, uh, built the, the gaskets for the space shuttles. Um, trying to think there's three or four other ones that I don't think they were, you know, their main business was necessarily coatings, but they uh, got involved in powder coating. And then we we started dipping our uh, toes back into it in the mid 90s. And uh, Pratt Lambert was one of the first acquisitions that we made. And then we uh, started selling or we went into a partnership with a company out of Canada. Um, I can't remember what the name of that company is now, but we were in a part kind of a partnership with them. And then we eventually bought them out. But um, in doing that, um, we've you know, a lot of training went with powder up until 1994. I didn't know anything about how powder went on, how it was applied. And so here I was nine years into my career um, at that time. And um, Sherwin Williams does a really good job of, of training, uh, lots of training, lots of on-hand training, lots of field training. And then the guys that you that really know it are the ones you kind of want to latch on to and every chance you get to be with them out in the field and learn from them and ask questions when they're, and I still do it. I have, you know, I've had some startups on some OEMs here just this year that um, I've brought some tech people in when they're training their, their, their painters um, just, you know, uh, paying, still paying attention to what they're telling them um, things that I can pick up. So you mentioned uh, about Sherwin-Williams' culture of training. I, that brings me back to another question I've been wanting to ask you. To spend 37 years with the same company is remarkable anyway, but especially if it was only supposed to be temporary. Can you talk a little bit about what kept you at Sherwin-Williams so long and what they did right? Um, well, I, you know, for me... Um... I've always been treated real well from Sherwin, from from you know the Sherwin Williams side. They're very uh, family oriented, very strong company, um, and I've always uh, I guess I've always felt appreciated. You get to that time in your life, I think, and for, you'll ask various people within you know Sherwin Williams when did you decide this was what you were going to make for the majority of your career, and for some reason I I, I pick out 1993, um, right in that time. So you know I'm eight years with the company at that time, and. I actually thought, so we uh, back up a little bit. We actually had a dedicated facility. It was part of a stores group, um, but we had a dedicated facility for manufacturers in, in um, Denver. And I actually thought that uh, another person was going to take that job um, when that, that manager went on to take another job with Sharon Williams. And, you know, you just, you, you eight years in the Denver market or the, uh, uh, yeah, in the Denver market, you start hearing, you know, when he moves on, this is the guy that's probably going to replace him. Well, that didn't happen. I just got a call from my boss to ask me if I wanted to go to dinner and didn't really know what that was about. Um, I had had a good year and on the, uh, running the, the commercial Denver commercial side at the time. And, Went to dinner with him, and he's. Uh, we got to talking about that facility, and he just said, well, "You know, why do you think he's going to take it?" He goes, "What? What about you?" And I, I guess I was probably kind of humbled by that, and said, "Well, I, I never, never really thought that I'd be asked about it." So he offered it to me, and I wouldn't say that was about the time when I just decided that. Well, 
you know, they, I guess they recognize uh, hard work. I, I, I was always a, I don't know, 50 to 60 hour a week guy, and nothing really less than that. And this goes back, you know, at that time when we didn't have the mixing capabilities that we have now. So we still, at the Denver Commercial Store, we were still um, doing some hand mixing. Uh, we were with, with some of our heavy industrial type coatings. We were still, um, there's a lot more, uh, a lot of things that, you know, the facilities have now that we didn't have back then uh, for various reasons. So, and my wife was, got used to that really early on that, um, she probably wasn't going to see me for dinner. <laughs> and I think that that, you know, I, I think that was just recognized. Um, we, we used to open up at six o'clock and pretty much from March through September, October, you pretty much other than Fridays, I usually tried to get out of there by five o'clock on Fridays, but you pretty much were there Monday through Thursday from, I want to say six till many times nine o'clock. Um, so, and during that time, that's when Denver was starting to go through some big uh, growth. I ran the commercial store, so we had the new Denver Commercial or Convention Center going on. Uh, about 92 is when DIA was starting. So, a lot of those projects were coming out of my facility. Um, Coors Field was being built. Uh, that was probably a little, yeah, it's about the time Coors Field was being built. So, I had a lot of those projects going on. And and uh, we opened at six o'clock. Well, you better be there at 545 with donuts for your contractors and you better have paint ready to load up. Um, so a lot of times uh, just stayed late the night before. So when they showed up there, they with their vans, they were, you know, you had your paint ready for them to pick up. So this is really interesting to me because we've been talking a lot about hiring on our social and you've probably been seeing some of that because you follow us so close, Eric. But um, we've been talking about team a lot and how to keep good retention and, and how to, you know, want to get people to stay for a really long time. And so since you've been with Sherwin for so long, that makes, you know, makes me have a lot of questions. But what I'm hearing you say is interesting because I'm looking at Sherwin as, you know, they're a huge company, global company. Kaiser's small, tiny, micro compared to Sherwin. And I sometimes struggle to, to think like how, how to motivate everybody and how to keep people wanting to work here. And it's such a small little speck compared to Sherwin, which is really big. But what I'm hearing you say is like, you were taking some pride in it. You enjoyed it. Um, it was like, you had some, almost, you felt like you had ownership in it cause there was so much stuff going on. So as I've, if I'm reading you right, that's kind of why you were just enjoying what you were doing. So there was really no reason to change. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And I, 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 I always wondered if anybody noticed, um, I don't know that I really cared because I, if anybody noticed, because I knew that I was doing the right things and, and, you know, I still back a little bit, my dad, you know, I think my dad coming from a, from an ag family, I, I, I don't know how many people really realize how much work ethic is in that. So growing up, um, I remember our neighborhood, my neighborhood buddies in urban Minneapolis, like Saturday mornings, we, they'd be talking about cartoons. We didn't know what cartoons are because my dad <laughs> might not necessarily have anything that we were old enough to do, but we were old enough to watch. Yeah. Or we were old enough to be a gopher. And and um, my mom was a stay-home mom, five of us kids. So, you know, 
My dad had a pretty decent job, but we didn't have a lot of extras. So if you wanted extras, you better go find a way to make a buck to buy your own extras. So, um, and I was the oldest, so, you know, I'd mow yards and, and then I think, you know, I, I remember it came Christmas time and I was buying Christmas presents for my, for my mom and dad and my brothers didn't have anything that, uh, you know, they didn't, they weren't doing anything to make any income. So I remember buying Christmas presents for all my siblings so that they could give to my mom and dad. But then the next year, I'm like, you guys need to go out and get some yards to do. So I, I just think that that work ethic that I had at a very young age just kind of went with me when I went to Sherwin Williams. And I'd hear somebody saying, what are you still doing there at nine o'clock? I'm like, well, what else am I going to do? You know, um, I, I played, you know, I played when uh, slow pitch softball and stuff like that when I lived back in Iowa during college and in the summers and stuff. But when I moved out to Iowa, it wasn't like I really, or out to Colorado, it wasn't like I knew a lot of people, but I knew, you know, my contractors became my friends, my other managers became my friends. So, you know, the socializing or the, you know, that would go on while I was working and, and, um, but anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of what happened. But I think that the, you know, 1993, when I was, I was really flabbergasted that uh, my boss, you know, at the time, good guy, we had a really good relationship. He asked me to go out to, to dinner with him that night, and I probably didn't put a whole heck of a lot in it. I thought we were just going out as friends, you know, just, and so we went out, and then he asked me to, to take uh, that that position that I never expected. Um, I, I, I think I just took that as, well, I guess people are recognizing, you know, what I do or, and I think that's when Chloe asked about, you know, what made me decide that that's to stay that long. I think that was about the time. And then of course, you know, the longer you get, you start building up a retirement and, and, um, that, that caused you to hang on. And, and I was actually, to tell you the truth here, uh, I got, coming it'll be 37 years uh, in march but i was uh i was looking at maybe retiring in 33 years at 33 years and and i didn't know what i wanted to do i mean i i have a um, a lot of people that i know of that have really saved well for their retirements but they didn't have they didn't have anything planned for what they were going to do with it that's interesting so when you when you think about like your customers and, and we're, we're in a similar situation, we're actually doing the finishing, but you're selling the coatings. Um, how much, it seems like when you were working in the store in Denver and, and then went over from the commercial side to the, uh, finish the industrial finishes, what I'm hearing in your voice, you took a lot of pride in that work and you really took pride in the projects that you were providing paint for. And you still do that today, just in a little bit different way, but how do you, I guess, how do you look at that? Because from my side at, at Kaiser, I feel really great that we're putting out a, a good quality product and maybe not everybody understands exactly what we're doing with the blasting, pretreatment, and powder coating, but I know that all those things together create a really good finish and that's going to be a, a really long-term uh, piece of metal out in the environment, even though nobody really gets it. Sometimes that bothers me that nobody really understands it. Um, how do you kind of think about that and reconcile that when you're trying to spec out a paint that, you know, that's what it has to be. And, but not everybody else understands that. Well, so bear with me here. Cause I'm going to, I listened to one of your recent podcasts or uh, when you about um, training for, 
training for finishers. Okay, okay. And do they? And, and I think that kind of coincides with what you're talking right now. But I remember really early on um, with Sharon Williams, whether it was somebody coming in and I was trying to sell them a coating, and they didn't understand what why it was worth six dollars more. And so, you know, backing up there, coming from the from the lumber side of things and the supplier side, I, I kind of came up with a term that paint gets no respect. It's the last thing in the budget. It's usually the last thing in the budget, whether you're building a house, whether you are, um, uh, you know, building a hay rack. Um, paint is the last thing on the budget, but it's the first thing you see. So absolutely. It's also the thing that gives the most, um, at the end of the day, it probably gives the most uh, uh, protection to that coating other than maybe the structural part of it as far as it holding up. But people will pay a lot more for something that they don't see behind a wall, whether it's necessary or not, than they will for paint that's there to protect that. Um, so I've always thought that, um, and so I take with that, I think to myself, well, what goes with that is that we don't put enough attention to the expertise it takes for people to clean that surface and paint it because of the result of that. I I could not agree more with that. That's exactly what you took. I have took... heard Jay say that so many times in almost exactly the same words. That's so interesting. Yep. They just, it just doesn't. And like you said, it's usually, I mean, I think about when I was, of course, I, I was in paint. So I, I knew when I was going to, we built a new home here when we moved. So I knew what I was going to put on my house at that time. But somebody that wasn't in the paint business might not think about that. And they might have been sitting down with somebody planning on building their home and everything. And then at the end, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll paint. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we've been, our kind of theme and overall goal in 2022 is just try to do more education. Like most of our social media has always been focused around like Kaiser, what we do, what, what kind of work we're putting out, how we do it, my frustra personal frustrations with everything and how that all mixes in with the coding industry. But we're going to try to take a little step back and zoom out a little and just like talk about the coding industry in general to try to get more information out there. I think we're going to, we're probably going to focus more on like just ed trying to educate people so they know it exists so that it could be a career path for them. Um, but yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent with all that, that we just, um, for whatever reason, even like if somebody, it's the same thing when you're talking about being in a dentist chair. Um, if anybody ever asks me what I do and I'm like, Oh, I manage a blasting and powder coating facility. The look on their face is just a hundred percent blank. And then I have to go into a long, description and, and try to explain but really they never end up understanding it and i i'm starting to come to the conclusion that like that as a finishing industry someone par a part of it that's kind of my responsibility to help kind of move that forward and get it out to where everybody understands because it's the problem is that it and exactly what you alluded to eric is that everybody when we talk about start talking about painting they're thinking about putting paint on a wall and that's totally different than all the painting that we're talking about. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, the people, I don't really think people realize how many things are painted, how many things have a coating and what, and, and actually what that coating is there for. Um, I still have people that, that, that want to know why they need a primer 
um, on a metal part and, and, you know, to let them know that that's not necessarily there for adhesion. We can get a good clean surface. I can get that there for adhesion. That's strictly there for corrosion protection. And then you go through the, 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 the whole steps of what happens and, 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 and how it helps from corrosion and corrosion starts from a clean surface out and, and, you know, you score that down to the metal, um, some of that, they just literally, you really have to have to show it to them. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's something like when you, when, when I, I've heard you talk about people questioning costs. Is, mm. is that something that you've ever asked that person who really questions you to, to come watch the process? Um, probably not. Cause a lot of the time the, the people that are questioning costs are like our general public. So they're not really interested or have the time to come look and see um when i think when we get more into the industrial side where we're talking about our big industrial customers they usually come see our process and so if if i've already given them a quote or am about to give them a quote that helps them kind of contextualize like oh okay so if this is the upper end of the quotes that i've gotten but i can see that everything they do here is correct and important right Right. And that slot would make sense. Yeah. The ones that are at, you're giving a quote to. And so that they, and they, they're actually probably checking your process. They, they right. want to see the process, make sure it meets their criteria. So one last, I want to change gears one more time um, before we get done here. We've been talking for about an hour. Um, we talked about how COVID impact, impacted you a little bit in terms of being able to go out and see people, but not so much. And it seems like that that was kind of our same feeling that we got that like it we were trying to be safe and it was affecting us but we still kind of did business as usual the best we could how i mean i know the supply chain has been impacted severely and how it's been affecting kaiser um how has it affected you and it says some of these like you've been in the industry for so long um and this is kind of coming towards the end of your career has it aided to like you mentioned that you might be retiring in the next few years has this all of this kind of aided to like, man, I'm getting tired of this. This is a good time to be done. And how did all that experience that you've acquired all over the years help kind of deal with this issue that we've, I don't feel like I've never seen it before, but I haven't been in it as long as you. So have you ever seen anything as, as frustrating as this? I've never seen it from a, uh, being able to get product to people. Now, as far as car, you know, the, the pricing price increases and such they've been very dramatic in the last uh, since so I want to say uh, year uh, 14 months um, we had I remember my first five years of Sherman Williams started in 85 I, we didn't have a, a single price increase until 1989 uh, at least in my market in the Denver market we didn't and that was because we had uh, a titanium dioxide, our first known titanium dioxide shortage at that time in 1989. We had three increases that year. Up until last year, that was the only time I can ever remember having three increases in one year. Um, and last year we had three of them. So um, I'll just, you know, we talked a little bit already about the labor part of things, but the um, so the, the 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 and all I can do is tell you what you know what how what's come what comes to us and that is that our uh, suppliers of resins and pigments are on allocation. So whether they're stuck on a ship, whether we're not able to get um, get things, understanding that 
Um, we still have a lot of products that come from the earth. Well, we still have a lot of organic products that come from the earth. Not everything is inorganic that we have in our coatings. Uh, titanium dioxide is being one of them. Um, and that's that product is, is what gives us our hide, whether it be in powder or liquid. Um, if you ever wanted to, to you know, and I tell people, this is this this is what I tell people when when I talk about titanium dioxide, the hide. When somebody wants to know what, why that forty dollar gallon of paint, um, um, well, shoot, I, I've been away from that now. So forty dollar gallon of paint is probably on the low end versus a sixty five dollar gallon of paint on the high end. What makes a difference? So, and I just tell them it's it's your time. Do you want to put one coat on or three coats on? So you just have to decide what your time is there. So when I'm talking about titanium dioxide in our industry, there's a lot of that still comes from other parts of the world. And a lot of our pigments still come from other parts of the world that we just don't have in the United States. Um, so, you know, we're still getting things brought in from overseas from, from uh, suppliers. And um, so we all know, you know, we've all read the stories about what, what goes on, what's going on with that. And that seems like that's still going to continue. Um, so we're on allocations. So what I'm what I, what I'm being told is that you know when they meet with our buyers, they're saying this is what you're going to get next week, and then uh, you know 20% of what they told was going to show was was going to show up showed up, and that might be a specific resin, and might be you know 10,000 pounds of a resin that is enough to make 200 pounds of powder, and Monday comes and the truck only has. 6,000 of that 10. So now you got to spread that out amongst all of your, uh, all of the um, batches that you had planned for the following week based on what you were told. And then uh, in uh, reds, yellows, and oranges are not on just allocations, they're on what's called restricted allocation. So one of the things that Sharon Williams has taken the attitude on, at least in my side, I can't talk for the for the um, uh, house paint side or the tag side, um, is that we are building product right now for where it's needed. We and, and I we I've had to have some tough conversations with some customers that have always had powder in stock, and I'm talking large amounts, 10,000 pounds, 30,000 pounds of powder that we've had in stock for them. And uh, I'll just take red as being one of them. And I'm just, I've had to tell them, we, we can't make that 30. We're going to make four for you because we know that that's going to last you till the end of the month or the next couple weeks. That red pigment is needed somewhere else. And so Sherry Williams has taken the, the advantage of, of the attitude in my industry that we're not going to allow product to sit somewhere when it's needed somewhere else. And that's the part of the of my job that I've never had to do before. Um, it's to tell basically to tell people no. Yeah, tell them that I, I I I love to sell. I don't get paid for it, but the guy down in Orlando, Florida, needs it worse than you do. Mm -hmm. So, and that's. That's something that uh, we're hoping is going to get better. We thought we were going to be better, uh, you know, second quarter, I think, is when we really started to see what, what it was doing. Uh, it, 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 we're, we're maxed out. I mean, we're, we're not sitting around waiting on those things and not able to make paint because there's other ones that we can make. Um, but I have orders that are sitting since August that I just I'm waiting on a resin. Um, 
I took a lot of beating the first half of the year. Um, I think some of the relief why I'm not taking that beating anymore is, well, when you get the powder here, I don't have the people to put it on it. Yeah. Um, so that's taken a little bit of relief or some other um, raw material um, that's needed for that product. They can't get anyway. Um, I don't like to take that attitude of, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to rest on mine because they can't do anything with it. I, I, I just know that once you get that, that becomes contagious. And then pretty soon you do just give up and then you do say, Hey, well, I, well, I just call it quits for now. And I'm trying, try, I'm trying not to do that. Um, I, I'll, I'll just tell you a short story. So in 1987, I had an opportunity to take another job and for another, uh, company, um, in Oregon, I wasn't married yet, and um, it wasn't a lumber business. And I actually gave Sherwin's my notice, um, and I got a call from people up higher up to stick around, so I did. But uh, I, I didn't, I didn't take that job. But um, I remember, uh, I remember fighting with a freight company over a freight charge in that two week time period. And my ops manager at the time goes, why do you care? And I, just, and I, and I thought to myself, because it's not right. They overcharged us, even though I wasn't going to be around, you know, at that time I thought I wasn't going to be around, but um, I, I, I just, I still trying to fight to keep my customers, keep them going. We don't want anybody to go. I don't ever want to hear somebody was sent home because paint that I told them they were going to have didn't arrive. You know, we don't have the pain here today. You need to go home. I don't. And I and, and so even internally, when I seem to get a little, if I get any kind of pushback, or, you know, there's nothing you can do. And I don't feel like that person has has done their job of seeing if they can't come up with an alternative or, you know, um, I'll just pick out our, an REL colors, for example. Like we, we make some REL colors for customers that we also put some extra in it. We'll put some extra outgas on it because they're doing a bunch of, um, you know, they're painting over a whole bunch of blasted uh, steel and they've always asked us to put additional outgas in it. Well, when we do that, that's that's a custom. Mm -hmm. So it, it gets caught in line. Well, we're maxed out on our line so that two to three week time period that we've always had now has become a two to three two month to 10, 10, 10 week time period for various reasons. We maxed out on our lines and we can't get the, the pigments. Um, so, um, you know, some of those things I don't always know about that those orders have been placed. And then when I'm, when I, when I did find out that I didn't know about them, I'm like, guys, hey, you, you know, I need to know about those kind of things because I go to the customer and I can tell them, Hey, I can get this REL color for it. It just doesn't have the additional odd gas that you want in it. And and then, you know, save the order, kept the guy going. Um, we actually are able to, um, I can actually buy out gas or get out gas additive and put it on, on the line through, you know, a fluidizing hopper if they're willing to, to do that, um, to get that additional for them for those kind of cases. But, you know, in those instances, I guess where I was going with that is that I, I, I when I don't feel like everybody on the team's putting the same efforts forward, I'm like, what would you do if somebody came in here and said, Hey, I don't have anything for you to do any paint for you to mix today. You need to go home. <laughs> so I don't ever want to have to tell a customer that. But. Well, that makes sense. That, I, and I feel very much the same way. And kind of the through line through this whole conversation, I feel like is that you've always had really, really hard work ethic and you learned that growing up and, and that stuck with you and you've, worked really hard at Sherwin and enjoyed working there and have taken a lot of pride in your work 
And so then when we get into a situation where we are now with this, the supply chain, chain struggles, you, you haven't changed your attitude. You're still wanting to, to do everything you possibly can to help your customers. And I think that's why that Sherwin has been wanting to keep you uh, employed for so long and why they, you know, they've definitely noticed how hard that, that you've worked all these years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that want to go out on top. They don't want to go out when they're at the bottom, you know, and then it looks like he just kind of gave up because you couldn't do it anymore, or that kind of thing. So, and I take that as kind of what's going on right now. I don't want to just take that attitude that I'm going to bail now because um, it's just gotten too tough because there's been a lot of times when things have been tough, you know, throughout my career and uh, different economic scenarios, um, different, you know, just uh, changes. You know, the, it, was, it was a big change when we, when we created our own division. It's been a big change even with the acquisition of, of Valspar. We've done some things a little bit differently through those times that aren't the traditional way of how Sharon Williams has, you know, has done things. And you just roll with those changes um, and figure out some way. I'm really big about solutions. I pride myself on trying to figure out solutions for customers and just saying, um, you know, that's just how it is. Because uh, um, I, I guess, you know, for better terms, I'm not built that way. Well, this has been really good conversation. Um, we've got, we're talked for over an hour. I don't have many more questions. Do you have anything else, Chloe? I'd love to have you back on at some point. And, um, we were talking a little bit offline about just the hiring process and staffing. And, um, I just have a lot more questions for you about your own personal experience staying with Sherwin Williams as long as you have. So, but I think that that should be a separate episode. Yeah, that'd be fine. And I, and I and I probably because we, we've actually had a lot of discussion about that this week because I we we are actually um, I mean we're looking for people all over. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no problem. It was a really good talk, and uh, we look forward to having you back on sometime in the future. Thanks for your time. Uh, this is a really really good episode. One of the best ones we've done so far, I think. Thank you, Jace. Thank you, Chloe. So nice to meet you, Eric. Thank you. Yep. Take care. So that was a great talk with uh, Eric of Sherwin Williams. Um, I actually learned a lot there from him, and uh, like like Chloe said, hopefully we get to have him on in the future. So what did you what did you think? What are your thoughts on everything he talked about? I didn't realize how much um, I agree with him, and I, like so I know Eric a little bit as a powder coating rep, and um, it's. Like we don't spray a ton of Sherwin Williams powder, um, for whatever reason, and uh, so I don't get to talk to him a lot. Probably a couple times a year, but we I've never learned his background in things, and um, never really heard him talk about just his day to day. And hearing that he's like extre- has an extremely high work ethic and and has no problem working a ton of hours and and uh, rolling up his sleeves and helping because that's kind of, that's where he started right back in the in the stores. Um, doing whatever he could to make sure product was getting out to all the customers. So that, uh, it really impresses me. It's refreshing to hear that there's another person um, in the industry uh, and like locationally, regionally close that um, has a lot of the same thoughts that I do. Sometimes you feel like that, that, that doesn't exist and you're the only one. So that, that was interesting. I, I'm glad that we, 
we did this podcast. I'm look. I'm already looking forward to having him on again someday. Yeah, he was great. I had never um, interacted with him much at all, but he definitely seems like a good resource um, for us here in the finishing industry. Absolutely, and I think a good resource for us to bounce ideas off of when we start, uh, as we start to thinking about this educational um, theme and and kind of structure that we're going for in 2022 to just to just get the word out. There's obviously a lot of experience to draw from from him uh, with 30 years in the industry. Speaking of drawing from experience, we have a question from social media that's a bit of a can of worms. Are you ready? Let's go for it. So this came to us via Instagram. Um, Oh, shoot. And I didn't catch the handle, so I'll have to go back and find that. But the question was, I am working for a company that is starting down the path of doing some powder coating in central Illinois, small and large parts. The question I have is if you can share some industry secrets on quoting the work. Seems to be a difficult procedure with all the variables of energy for baking, chemical for pretreatment, powder, labor, etc. Just looking for someone to point me in the right direction. I haven't really found any software to use to quote accurately. Thanks for any help. Okay. Actually, I think this one came through from email. but um, And I wanted to point that out because I was really surprised that someone would get on our our website, click the contact us, and email me this question. Um, Just because, like... I. I mean, good for this person to reach out and ask for help, right? Directly coming right to the to a, a source in the coding industry. Um, I would be like too scared to ask that question of somebody else. I feel I don't know why, but I just would. So so this guy um, or gal definitely um, has no fear. But anyway, uh, asking somebody else about how to cost your work, I think is maybe not the best way to go about doing it because everybody's costs are different. Uh, the biggest thing that people need to consider is, first of all, your material costs. And I understand if you're just starting, you're like, well, I'm not sure. Well, you can get quotes on your chemical and powder, and you can get a rough idea. You may have to do a couple projects, you know, do your own wheels and your grandma's lawn chairs, and then you'll have a decent idea of how much powder and chemical that took within reason. Um, so your material costs are important. Then labor cost. So if you're just doing it yourself, um, that's not free. Okay. So you have to figure out what do you want to pay yourself? If you're just starting all by yourself, you're not going to be paying yourself very much, right? You're going to be in the, what depending on location in the United States, but you're probably in the 15 to $20 an hour range that you should be paying yourself per hour. If, if you're doing the coding all by yourself. And then the third is going to be your overhead costs, which are how much does it cost to rent for your building? How much electricity, how much natural gas to run your oven? Um, and any other thing that is hard to associate with a job, like maybe you have to have a computer and remember you bought all that equipment. So you have an oven and a spray gun and stuff like that. And that goes into your overhead. Now, obviously you can't make your first customer pay for all of your equipment that you just bought because that doesn't make any sense. But you have to have some sort of feeling of, you know, I want to, you know, how how long should it take for me to pay for my equipment? Whether I mean, maybe you didn't, maybe you took um, loans out to pay for all your equipment, so you have payments that you have to make. So those would be specific costs that you do actually have to cover in a spe- specified amount of time. But let's say you, so let's say you have a loan on your 
on your oven, but you have you bought your powder gun outright, um, you still want to divide in a little bit of that so you slowly but surely you, you get the, the investment back on your powder gun. Okay, so the overhead is the hardest to figure out because you have to estimate how much work you're going to do probably in the next year or so. So I can't really give an exact, like, you know, it, if I say we powder, plastic and powder coat wheels for $75 each, which we do, that does not mean that, that someone else should just do that and blindly think that they're going to be making money because they could be losing. Um, or maybe they're drastically overcharging because it doesn't actually cost them that much to do it um, based on the area that they're at and based on their overhead costs. We're all a larger company than a one person. Right, we provide benefits to uh, a lot of benefits to employees that somebody has no employees doesn't. So my overhead costs of operating daily are higher. Um, so anyway, uh, you just got to figure out your costs, and then you have to figure out how long is it going to take you to do it, and how long it's going to take you to do it also depends on experience. Um, Wills can spray. Wills, who works at Kaiser, can spray twenty wheels way faster than someone who's just starting and spraying their first 20 wheels ever in their life. So I can't tell you that that should only take you an hour. It could take you eight hours. Okay. It just is what it is. So you, you gotta, you gotta figure out, um, how long it's going to take you to do it. So there's going to be some trial and error, right? So you, the first couple jobs that you're going to quote are just going to be absolute guesses. And they need to be reasonable enough that someone will actually let you do the work so you can learn. But after a little while, you better start slowly figuring that out because otherwise you've got a bucket with a hole in the bottom and more water's pouring out than's coming in the top and then you're going to go out of business. So you need to figure it out quickly. But the only way to do it the right way is to figure out your costs um, and how much time you're putting in it. And then that's how you figure out how you're going to charge somebody. You keep pretty meticulous records of all that, don't you? Like you have basically a database where you can, at this point, you know, several years into your career, estimate how long it's going to take to coat parts because you've been keeping track of how long it took to coat, to coat parts. Yeah, that's something we've always done at Kaiser, and that comes from my dad. So we've always logged time on everything that we ever do. So I know exactly how long, within reason, obviously, it's there's a little bit of fudge room in there. But um, I know exactly how long it's going to take to hang something, pack something. Uh, wash it, spray it, and that helps because the the one of the biggest costs is the labor. So you need to know how long it's going to take you to do it. Because if you if you quote a job and think it's going to take eight hours and it takes twenty four, then you really just went really backwards on that job. Um, the material costs are a little bit easier because you just get that quoted, and then after a, a little bit of time, you pretty much know like this how much powder it takes to go on a part and that really doesn't change ever you just you know that but the labor cost is something that varies quite a bit because um every project's different every everything has nuances so it, something that you think is going to go quick doesn't and takes away longer um so yeah keeping really good records i feel like will help you get profitable more quickly instead of just continue like you can't continue to guess month after month after month. Like after after four weeks, if you've been powder coating pretty regularly for four weeks, you should be able to sit down and have a look at what 
how much time you got and everything and all the material that you've used, you should have a really good idea of what you need to charge going forward to not lose money. And if you can't do that, then you're, then you're not paying close enough attention after four weeks. So take good notes. Absolutely. And then because I utilize our notes and I have a really good memory, so I'll be looking at prints and be like, this is, this is like that part we did three years ago. Let me pull the notes out on that. How many pieces was it? What color was it? You know, how much time did it take? And then I kind of alter those numbers a little bit. And then that's how I come up with my quote for this new part. Cause I don't want to just guess. I want to have an, you, you need to be, have an educated guess. It's basically what it boils down to. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think that wraps up Kazercast episode 18. This was, this is going to compete for one of the best ones we've done. Probably going to be one of the best ones of 2022, even though this is real early. First episode of 2022. Second one's going to be pretty hard to beat. I think we have either Ross with Modern Coding Solutions or Mike Cunningham yeah. is next. Mike Cunningham next. Okay, so he's so. going to raise the bar on, on <laughs> another level because Mike, Duck Blind Mike, is amazing. And uh, so he'll have a little more comic relief in his. But this is a this is gonna be this is a really good start to twenty twenty two in terms of podcast guests. Starting off strong. Hey, is everything working good for you? You need anything? Anything broke? Anything leaking? Just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. Can you stay late tonight? We need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated. If we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything?